Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Dalance. According to news media, Europe is in crisis. I'm not talking here about the pandemic, and not even about Brexit, but about what has been called Europe's migration crisis, a refugee crisis, a border crisis, or even a humanitarian crisis. How do the media contribute to our understanding of this crisis, and how do they create the experiences of those affected by forced migration? Well, an ambitious and wide-ranging new book, How Media and Conflicts Make Migrants, by Kirsten Falkert, Federico Oliveri, Gardi Badacharaya, and Jana Graham, answers some of these questions and brings together a wide range of perspectives and methods for analysing the role of media in migration. To set a scene a little bit for our listeners, we're looking at a series of events that manifested themselves at Europe's borders, often in the form of um, news, news items, news reports about deaths of migrants who sadly perished while trying to cross the Mediterranean. And these events, which in a couple of years, either side of 2015, did appear like a crisis. They are actually connected to a complex uh, series of complex events, usually taking place outside of Europe. Earlier, I spoke with Kirsten Falkert, a reader in media theory at Birmingham City University, Gadiga Bacharaya, who is a professor of sociology at the University of East London, and with Jana Graham, who is a lecturer in visual cultures at Goldsmiths. Welcome to the show. Um, To begin, I'd like to ask each of you about how you came to the project and how all of this came together. Let's start with you, Kirsten. Well, a lot of my work's been dealing with um, questions of migration and nationalism and um, uh, questions of citizenship and belonging. And um, But also, I just wanted to give you a bit of a backdrop of what was going on, because um, there was a situation where um, we've had some very strongly anti-immigrant rhetoric from the government, which was making its way into the press. I think from what I recall at the time, there was a headline about um, migrants um, as, as a, a swarm in our streets. Then shortly after this, we had the photo of um, Ellen Curdy circulating in the media. And what was very interesting about that, um, because I'm always interested in these moments when there's a kind of break or rupture in this very kind of normalized, naturalized, you know, strongly xenophobic rhetoric, is that even the Daily Mail, which is, you know, the one that we know the most of the anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, there was a... Um, you know, I think a week later, um, after they were the ones who actually had the headline about the swarm in the streets, there was a photo of Alan Curdy and um, and a headline sort of along the lines of it being a human tragedy. And then at the same time, we started to see all these solidarity groups being organized on social media about donating clothing and food and other essentials to Calais, which at the time, it seemed like the public was trying to counter um, this xenophobic rhetoric with their actions to say that this government does not speak for us. We are better than this government. We're not the xenophobes that our government is representing us. At. So it was interesting to think about uh, what caused this to shift and how long would it last? I mean, was this um, a kind of like thick solidarity that, that would lead to more... Um, sort of like pro-migrant campaigns, or was it a kind of thin solidarity that would sort of dissipate as soon as it's out of media headlines? So this kind of moment that we're in, that, we're, that was changing very quickly, um, I think was the catalyst for our project. And it was, in retrospect, a moment that didn't last because as we saw the attacks in Cologne, I think in particular, we started to see the rhetoric hardening again. So I think this project came in an interest 
and, and what causes these kinds of discourses and actions to shift and, and how quickly these kinds of forces can turn to a kind of normal of, um, you know, kind of very hard and brutal xenophobia. Well, as it does seem like quite an apt description of this bewildering um, circle of media representation that I remember experiencing living in the UK. And I know that your colleague Federico Oliveri performed um, similar types of analysis with Italian media, and we'll get to talk about this in a moment. Turning to you, Gargi, Gargi Bhattacharya, um, you're a sociologist and therefore your topic of study is slightly different. You, you're looking, in fact, at people at a slightly different point in, in a migratory journey. I mean, I guess the thing I wanted to talk about a little bit at the beginning is, as you've said, the framing of the book is partly a question mark about how we think about people in movement. And although there are very good reasons to highlight the questions around forced migration and the international responsibilities, especially of European and um, other nations in the global north, we were very concerned at that moment about the ways in which a kind of arbitrary marker was being made between people who were seen as deserving and non-deserving. Then Kirsten has said that already came out of a previous project we did around the go-home vans. And some of how deservingness was framed was the idea that there are some people who are real refugees, very, very hard actually, in current um, situations of conflict to meet the hurdle to be a refugee under the UN Convention, because in situations of state failure, who is the persecuting actor? And then if you're not a real refugee, you're just an economic migrant, as if your need to eat and your need to flee are completely separate. So quite a lot of our interest was coming at that, about how you understand conflict as a pusher of migration, but then how you mix up the ways in which people might be pushed into migration, then the role of the media in far from illuminating that, actively obfuscating that complexity of what forces people into movement. Well, you mentioned the go-home vans, which I think are an incredibly uh, poignant manifestation of the kind of media and political landscape that you and Kirsten have just referred to. So the go-home vans were a crude campaign in around 2013, which in the streets of London essentially invited migrants to self-identify as being illegal and inviting them, invited them to leave the country. Kirsten. I just wanted to make a very quick point that the 1951 um, UN Convention defines a refugee as someone who is fleeing persecution. And it's not the same as fleeing war or conflict. But again, the way the media often frames refugees, they often frame it very narrowly as you must be fleeing a sort of a definable war um, that's hitting the Western news media. Um, but, you, but you can be fleeing persecution for many other reasons than fleeing war. But that kind of narrowing of, of how refugee is being defined led to this kind of um, tendency to frame anybody else outside these very narrow terms as an economic migrant and therefore as undeserving. Thank you, Kirsten. I think we're beginning to understand or at least see the scope and the complexity of the issues you raise and the methods with which you look at them. Um, and I wonder how you, Jana, Jana Graham, came to this project, given that you have previously been a curator working with art. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess my research has been um, looking at questions of um, solidarity and support and how to 
you know, arts workers, arts organizations, and artistic practices and curatorial practices, how can they be used as methodologies for producing relations of solidarity between communities and struggle? Um, uh, and, you know, researchers and people working in the cultural sector, how do we how do we form alliances around our opposition to some of the tendencies that Margie and Kirsten are talking about? I suppose I'd spent several years working in the context of different uh, performance and theater groups, implicated theater, which was invented at the Serpentine Gallery when I was there and, and also working with the group, the Collective Nowhere um, on just trying to formulate different ways of producing these kinds of solidarities through through artistic practice. But I guess one of the big questions for me, and I think for the project more generally, and, and specifically for the groups that we worked with, because my my piece of the research, I suppose, was really in collaboration with, um, with BARA and with Global Sisters United, who are refugee-led organizations. It was really important to us to think about um, how these media representations become part of the popular imaginary and become embedded in sort of everyday life and everyday behaviors um, of the communities that are, um, you know, hosting or in some cases not hosting um, refugee communities or people who have who have traveled from other places in in the widest sense, and um, and certainly in the research we discovered uh, what we knew to some extent already, which is that the, the tendencies in the media. Uh, infiltrate everyday life and they've really the kinds of stories and the, the structure of the story that's requested and required from um, people on the move in the various ways in which they engage both with the media and with the border services um, and border agencies, that those start to formulate um, and, and create certain dynamics of relationship with the broader population. And that those um, that sort of request extraction of particular kinds of stories, the story, sad stories, stories of victims, et cetera, um, really also are part of the the um, the problem that are that is faced by people when they when they come here. You know, it's part of the hostile environment. You know, so we were really interested in how do we work in that? Um, how do we understand that and analyze that? But how do we also work against that as a, a group of researchers working in solidarity with uh, migrant-led organizations or refugee-led organizations? Well, that solidarity certainly felt throughout the book. I just want to add briefly that while Federico Oliveira couldn't join us today, his contribution in the book is, is certainly visible and he brings an Italian perspective and research on Italian media um, to, to the project. And that's kind of remarkable because it gives your research even more significant geographical scope, let, let alone thematic scope. Um, and to get into some of the issues of the book now, um, you begin with a consideration of Western media coverage of conflict and war, and you use these to discuss um, ideas of white innocence and colonial amnesia, which you um, describe as framing all representations of foreign conflict. Kirsten. Okay, so in terms of the first chapter, it's about trying to understand how um, global conflicts are understood by media audiences, and particularly those happening outside the West. I think in what we're arguing is that there's a sense of, of, of amnesia, about of, of not knowing about what, what what's taking place outside the West in terms of the actual conflicts, but also their wider history and their implication within legacies of colonialism. Because um, when, when these are represented in the news media, it's often as isolated incidents 
And the news representation is also, it presents things in terms of actions in the field or the decisions of, of these usually great, usually male leaders who make decisions about what happens in other parts of the world on the basis of their character, but, but um, very little about the wider context, about the experiences of local populations. Local populations are hardly ever given a voice in news coverage of in conflicts in other parts of the world. Um, and so what we were really trying to understand with this chapter is where did the sense of, of innocence, or even, I'd actually say, ignorance, come from? I mean, in, and this is where the concept of white amnesia and post-colonial innocence uh, come from. So white amnesia was a concept that was developed by Barner Hess um, in a text called, um, it, was, it was in a chapter of a book called um, White Governmentality from 1997. Um, what he says, I'm just, if you just, I'm just going to read a little bit of the quote. He says, whiteness refers not only to the occlusion of its racialized history, but also to its resistance to questioning as a racialized identity particularly where it insinuates and conceals, conceals itself discursely as the horizon of universal representation. So we take whiteness to be universality. We don't actually see whiteness as, a, as an identity in the same way that we'd understand other identities. We see it as a kind of neutral universal. And because of that, um, there's this form of erasure going on where we don't really... Um, we don't think about the hegemonic structure of whiteness. So I'm just going to read another bit of this quote. He says, um, this is again quoting from Barner Hess, this hegemonic structure of whiteness forgets its contested antecedents. It forgets what others remember. In effect, this white amnesia represses the historical context of racism because the threat of the racialized other absorbs all attention. So basically, because there is this ignorance about you know, the legacies of colonial violence, um, there's a tendency to... Um, you know, within white society to perceive themselves as innocent of this. And, and in this sense, the ones who are then seen as a threat um, are these refugees who are arriving on the shores of Western countries. And because there's no knowledge or ability to come to terms with the history of colonial violence, it's, it's as though these people are just turning up. And why are they turning up and they're threatening a way of life? Because, you know, we, we don't know what happened to this country. And, and this is where I think that, that quote of... Um, we're here because you were there, I think, becomes very important. And, and that, that's the way to counter that, that kind of white amnesia. And, and um, I mean, in terms of post-colonial innocence, it's, it's again a sense that of, you know, Western countries are not acknowledging the kinds of legacies of, of colonial violence. There's a tendency to present themselves as humanitarian benefactors, who, for example, um, might be sending aid money to other countries, but again, who don't take any responsibility for their own presence in these countries. Um, including histories of military intervention or exploitation of resources or, you know, exploitation of, of people. And so it's, again, easy to present refugees when, when people are fleeing poverty or destitution and violence or conflict to see them as um, kind of like taking advantage of, of our goodwill. So that, that's really how that's coming from. And, and so then the rest of the chapter is looking at how these sorts of ideologies play into news coverage and conflicts of other parts of the world. Gargi. Following on from what Kirsten had said earlier, just, and I think Kirsten said it, but just to say it once more, that a large part of what we found by analysing media coverage of both global conflict and issues around migration is that if you read British and Italian media, migration is described as a horror and tragedy that is disrupting European lives and that the victims of this thing called the migration crisis are those 
who live in the places where migrants are arriving, and that there's no historical context to that. There is some vague view that these poor people are fleeing war, but no sense of how war happens, what conflict might mean, what the longer history is. And that's part of white innocence, a kind of recognition that there is something in crisis, but the only thing in crisis is my life is being disrupted. That's what kind of white innocence is about and post-colonial amnesia. Thank you, Gargi. That's incredibly clear. And you have a range of examples of conflicts that play themselves out in which we can quite clearly see um, this amnesia and innocence playing out in media reporting. But interestingly, you, you also find examples where um, media reporting is subject to certain blind spot and biases, even without that kind of obvious connection to a conflict that we should be aware of. And I'm thinking in particular of the example of Eritrea. Kirsten, Kirsten Falkert. So in terms of Eritrea, I think we wanted to highlight that as an example of absence, because there aren't the kinds of Western political interests in Eritrea that there might be in other countries. Like, for example, there's no oil, there's no strategic location. Um, so Eritrea was kind of an absence. And so one of the things we looked at is how the um, British and Italian news media covered Eritrea. And, um, and we thought this was interesting because in both countries, there's an increasingly large um, Eritrean diaspora. But um, what we did see is that there was very little coverage and, a lot, and, the, and the very little that was there was kind of quite sensational, like it called Eritrea the North Korea of Africa. And as well, what was interesting is that in the Italian press, um, it was a similar thing. Um, they were, it was very limited. It was sensationalist. And it was either about um, how horrible and corrupt the regime is or, oh, what do we do? Because there are all these Eritreans coming to our shores now. Um, and then um, in the Italian context, there was also, from Federico's research, um, there seemed to be also a degree of nostalgia around Eritrea as apparently the first Italian colony. But this wasn't really with any acknowledgement of the um, current political context or the, the situation um, that people were fleeing, which is an extremely repressive regime. But because it's not a war in the way that we might understand the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, it doesn't make the media headlines. I mean, one of the concepts that we work with a little bit is, is um, the concept of new wars. Um, which is the idea that wars uh, are now increasingly happening between non-state actors and, and outside of territories that we conventionally think of as war zones. And, but new wars um, you know, pose all kinds of interesting questions for media coverage, because if something, if a particular conflict or particular event doesn't really fit how we might conventionally understand a war, then it's, it's very easy for it to be out of sight, out of mind, particularly if there are no geopolitical interests. And so um, when there's news coverage, for example, of Eritreans trying to seek protection in the UK and Italy, it's, it's again more easy to define it as, oh, there are all these people turning up on our shores, you know, um, taking our jobs or disabusing our goodwill. So what do we do? Hmm. So we, we're in a situation where migration at the same time solicits a humanitarian response and is also being constructed and perceived as a threat. I think the next thing that you do in the book that's quite interesting for me was the reception of this kind of media coverage in the countries that are um, the origins of migration. And it strikes me that the spectre of the empire is indeed alive and well. It would be great to talk about this for a little bit. Kirsten. Um, going back to the quote about Wipen Anisia, the 
um, the phrase that's in there, I think, which is very interesting, is about forgetting what the others remember. And I think our refugees, the refugees that we interviewed, um, I think it was the case of what the others remember, because the people we interviewed were, I think, well aware of the global context that was missing in a lot of news accounts of conflicts, because this was what they saw on the ground in terms of what was happening in their countries. And they're also aware of the global standard, whereby some people have freedom of movement and, and others don't. Um, and this has to do with the kind of racialized hierarchies of the immigration system. Um, it's questions like, who's got the most powerful passports? There's also a quote from one of our interviewees who talks about um, Mugabe, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And she says, how can you stand up and say Mugabe is evil when you're still supporting? You're letting him come to your conference. You let him come to anything but you're barring a poor old grandmother who is running away from being tortured, her family being executed and all that, but you're letting in the people who are responsible for that atrocity. So what does that say about your moral values? So it's a question of who has the most powerful passport, but it's also the question around, I think these categories that have been developed for kind of like very wealthy individuals, um, important politicians, and they've got a kind of mobility that ordinary people do not. So I think what they're doing is they're both um, they're both aware of, of the kind of colonial legacies and how they translate into present day global inequalities, but also how this is connected to the um, the hierarchies within the immigration system. What they were really doing is they were drawing those kinds of connections, and these are the kinds of connections that were often missed by mainstream news media. Thank you. Well, I'd like now to turn to a feature of the book that I found very endearing in a sense. And this is a series of interludes um, between chapters. There are sometimes extracts of interviews, uh, there are sometimes cultural artifacts, and sometimes artworks. And these ground the research in a particularly relatable way, which is, I think, beautiful. And Jana, could you speak about the function that these kind of interventions and methods play in the project? Yeah, I mean, we often use the term um, speaking back, you know, how how do we produce a kind of research set of methods that don't only analyze a problem with which we're, you know, familiar, you know, we know this problem and, and the lay analysis and everyday analysis of the groups that we worked with, it's very clear to them and it's it circulates in their social media um, with one another, you know, like one example that's in the book in one of the interludes is is this amazing um, double standard between when the press is reporting in the Daily Mail, they're talking about um, a Nigerian-born uh, football player who's caught with cannabis and he's described as a sort of Nigerian, you know, kind of outlaw. And then he wins something and suddenly he's seen as a, a sort of British boxer. And, you know, how, and how this this double standard circulates in the social media between different um, groups, you know, like people will compare those two things in their social media or in their WhatsApp groups, et cetera, as a way of sort of commenting on a regular basis on these kind of headlines and their ludicrousy in a certain way, you know. So, you know, we we really wanted to understand and, and partially because we had heard from different migrant groups we had worked with in the past, as well as in this project about how when refugee or those constructed as migrants and refugees refugees are invited to speak in the press, their invitation comes in very much the same way as the invitation to speak in a uh, at the border um, agency or in, in, a, in a reporting office. 
which is to tell the story of your tragedy, of your passage, and your gratitude for your arrival in the United Kingdom, regardless of how abysmally you've been treated. So, you know, these these kind of conventions of the story were something that we were we were trying to look at. What are methods of um, rejecting this? Because it's not only um, the border agencies that require the sad stories; it's often also human rights organizations. It's also researchers and artists. So, you know, the community that we are a part of and very much implicated in are part of that construction um, of the story. So we didn't want to leave those um, those kind of conventions that are not only in the press, but also in, in the kind of spheres that we operate in as researchers out of the picture. We wanted we wanted them to be challenged um, within the, the methodologies that were used. We used quite a, di- a few different methods. I mean, one of them was um, obviously more straightforward res- um, interviews, but I think it's important that those interviews were conducted with, for the most part, um, people who are part of organizations already migrant-led and constructed to, to work against the effects of the um, of border regimes. So these, these, were, these are, for the most part, folks who... Um, you know, have an analysis, are self-organized, um, and and really also have an ethos of self-organization. You know, of not being represented by others um, endlessly. And and you know, for one of the groups we worked with, um, uh, Global Sisters United, they explicitly said that the the year that we were working with them, they had already dedicated to sort of disputing and work and speaking back to media narratives. So it was already, you know, part of their practice in some ways that that they would do this. So part of it was, you know, part of it was those amazing interviews that were constructed with um with Garg and Kirsten. But I think even before that was a really important conversation with those groups, which was um, uh, about also their past experiences of giving testimony, not only to border agencies, but they talked a lot about the extractive tendencies of researchers, artists who would come to hear their stories and from whom they would never hear again. And so we really felt it important to um, establish a relationship of solidarity with those groups that we were working with, we're still working with. uh, and a long-term kind of set of commitments around the results of the research. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a kind of primary methodology, I suppose, um, which was to form those relationships. From there then came certain, uh, you know, I think far more candid kinds of conversations um, around uh, because they felt that the research was also theirs, you know, that they were going to use this research in their own practices. Um, and therefore the testimony was far more, I think, um, wide-ranging you know, in terms of what they felt comfortable to disclose and talk about, that they didn't feel they had to perform uh, again and again the sad story and the story of, of tragedy, um, which, of course, we also spoke at, at length about, but was not the only, you know, narrative form available. The second, so so that's, in some ways, I think that's why the interviews are um, also so expansive, I think, and so revealing of, of other ways of thinking and other ways of speaking about migrantification, as we came to call it, of the construction of migrant. Um, the second thing that we used was a, a kind of feminist methodology, which was um, uh, from uh, from Frigga Hogg, who's a, um, a feminist sociologist who worked um, in the 70s with women's groups on the construction of women in in terms of uh, almost like consciousness raising process of identifying not necessarily experiences of 
being a woman, but how woman gets constructed. And we thought this was an interesting methodology to use in relation to this kind of process through which people become a migrant. Nobody is a migrant. Somebody, one person travels and they're a traveler from another place and another does and they're a refugee and a migrant. And these are constructed categories. So we wanted to look at what are the processes through which that happens um, in the media, but also in everyday life. And that process, that methodology was um, to work through images. So so text, um, particular moments were drawn out of the descriptions that people gave in the interviews. Um, and they were then, um, we, we worked in groups to construct those as certain kinds of images that we could then work with theatrically, but also that, that really um, crystallize certain sets of relations in everyday life and everyday society. So some of those images were like, um, you know, sitting in a bakery and looking at a cake that you couldn't quite eat, you know, or or um, there was a really powerful one that was produced by Global Sisters United, which was this image of a circle and somebody in the middle who kept trying and trying and trying to get through, to break through, to kind of get out of the circle or get into the circle, depending on, on which way. There was an idea um, that came up of life in handcuffs, you know, like certain, you know, really vivid imagery that allowed us to really unpack what was happening in in very uh, specific circumstances in people at people's everyday lives. And then the the third methodology after that was then to work with those images and produce theatricalizations um, using image theater, using a bit of also ethnodrama in some cases of taking transcripts and turning them into more scripted elements. And those theatrical um, processes or projects were were um, both a way to really deepen the research and deepen the understanding of the of the different ways that migrants are constructed through social relations, not just the media, but through everyday life kind of relations, but also to um, use those images as ways to workshop strategies um, amongst refugees and also amongst wider communities and publics around how to reverse or challenge um, those experiences in everyday life. So, you know, an image... Um, of the line at the reporting center was sort of workshop with refugee groups on how they could play that scenario to be able to win, I suppose, against the border agency in order to gain more rights and more access. But by the same token, um, we were workshopping these scenarios also with wider British publics who aren't categorized as migrants um, to workshop ways in which solidarities could be formed in everyday life. Well, these attempts at solidarity certainly do come across in the book, and the kind of you know, reciprocal nature of this relationship is very visible. And I'd like to mention that the book contains reproductions of not just documents and transcripts of interviews, but also a whole range of artworks created by the researchers with the communities. But I think in order to move towards um, the notion of speaking back to media that you address in the latter parts of the book, I wonder if you could speak about a survey about the media literacy that, that you conducted, because I think it helps a little bit to situate what it is that media can and cannot enable. Okay, so we carried out a survey um, of young people in the UK and Italy, and we asked people about their um, their consumption habits, but also how they use the media to help them make sense of global conflicts, and also how they thought uh, migration was being represented. And I think what really came out of the survey was that, um, I think for one, 
And I think what I've said before about how uh, news media represents global conflicts, they, they also said the same thing, that they felt that it wasn't really giving them enough of a big picture. And the sense of not really knowing what was going on, not having the big picture, not really being presented with an analysis more than isolated incidents kind of in the theater of war. And some of them also mentioned quite jingoistic rhetoric about supporting our troops and that sort of thing. Um, because there wasn't a kind of um, bigger picture, they felt confused. They felt they, they didn't really know what was going on. And this made them feel um, disempowered. This made them feel helpless and, and confused. And so, I mean, there's, there is a debate about whether media witnessing kind of leads people into this very passive state. But um, what was important about the survey, there was also a lot of critical awareness because the people we surveyed knew that the media was biased. And, and there are re repeated references to bias in the survey, but they also would find strategies for countering it. Like some of them talked about reading news from multiple sources, from multiple political perspectives to be able to um, inform their viewpoint. And some of them, I think particularly when they came from kind of diaspora backgrounds, they specifically mentioned this in the survey, they talked about reading news sources in other parts of the world to counter the kind of narrow Western perspectives that we talked about earlier. But also, I think, um, consistent with what we know about changing patterns of news consumption, and I think one of the reasons why we interviewed um, young people is there, I mean, this is the demographic that is known to be changing their, their habits. So social media was a really important way of how people got their news, even though actually people still in the UK had a lot of faith in the BBC. Well, one of my takeaways from this study was that no amount of sophisticated training and, and double checking would actually lead to a media diet that was in any sense unbiased. But since you bring up social media, maybe let's move on to the next chapter, chapter three, in which you discuss the role of social media as part of the migration experience itself and in bringing migrant communities together and in organizing solidarity for migrant groups, as also as we discovered in, in spreading anti-migrant sentiments. Well, I think I think the thing to remember with social media, like the internet in general, like um, so. For example, there's a book by Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner, and they talk about the term the ambivalence of the internet. So the internet is not one thing; social media is not one thing. So I I think the fact is now we are living in a chaotic media landscape, and which there's also there's a lot of distress at the moment. Um, particularly, I think as we've seen with the survey in the media coverage, I think of migration, but also in the way that migration is managed. Um, and the distrust in the way migration is managed is both the case for both the migrants themselves and the pro-refugee groups and also the anti-refugee groups as well. One of the things we did in this project is we asked our respondents, and these are again refugees in the UK and Italy, about um, how they use social media. And one of the things they talked about was that they, um, they actually use social media a lot kind of as part of their migration journey. So, for example, um, there's one story we got from somebody um, in Italy who talked about actually using uh, Facebook to try to try to get on a boat to cross the Mediterranean. And they actually identified the people who had the most likes on Facebook as being the most trustworthy. Well, that's extraordinary. Another person talked about, I think, using WhatsApp. Um, they had a WhatsApp group going on the boat. and they realized that they were being taken in the wrong direction and that the people were untrustworthy, but they, they used that kind of method to, to communicate. Um, 
But as well, um, because the, the immigration system in both the UK and Italy is very difficult to navigate, it's very bureaucratic, you know, and there's a sense, I think, of, of people being set up to fail in, in many cases. Also, um, people don't, in many cases, have access to free, confidential, you know, legal advice. So, so people would set up these groups on, on WhatsApp or they, they talk about things on their social media platforms and they would get advice from each other about things like how to write their application how to navigate the immigration interview. And they were relying on each other because they could not rely on the state. And some of them had fallen between the cracks of, of some of the charities. So, so social media was being, being used on that purpose as well, but they also as well would use it to, um, to find out about what was going on in other countries. I mean, they were a bit wary, I think given all the controversies around Facebook and privacy, they're wary about how much they could actually post it and stay safe. For example, there's one person who was a Kurdish human rights activist in Turkey who, who fled to the UK. He, used, he said that when he was in Turkey, he used to post stuff against um, Erdogan. And then, um, but he said that Erdogan had trolls. Um, and they were worried that, um, you know, um, given all the, the controversies around Facebook and, and, you know, data mining, data sharing and so on, they, they weren't really sure whether um, if they posted things, whether it would get back to, the, you know, their families in the country they'd left. But also, I think what was important, and this was also the case for both the refugees and those, and also for the activists who were acting in support with them, um, you know, these platforms were being used as a form of, of um, alternative media. They're both being used as an organizing tool. Like, for example, the, the groups in the UK, the, the West Midlands Solidarity with Refugees and Refugees at Home, were using it to organize donations to Calais, but also to organize hosting people in their houses. And, and, you know, a lot of practical coordination around that. Um, but then the examples in Italy, there was Baobab Experience and Presidio Permanentino Borders. Um, so they were using that to, um, to coordinate the organization, I think, of, of both spaces. I mean, the, these were um, camps and, and um, Baobab Experience was a kind of unoccupied, I think, social space, um, which was unrated by the police. So they used social media to both coordinate action, but also to put alternative accounts about the raid, um, but also about the people staying there, um, you know, that were different from what was being covered in the news. Um, and they were also using it to highlight companies um, that were involved in uh, deportations um, and that sort of thing. So they're using it as, as an alternative media source. You know, social media's role here really is ambivalent because it's being used by people to coordinate those actions. But I think when we come to the, the anti-refugee groups, it's also being used to spread a lot of violent hate and that sort of thing. So when it comes to the um, the anti-refugee groups that we looked at, uh, which we had refugees not welcome in the UK and stop invasion in, in Italy, they used it mostly to share news sources and conspiracy theories, such as, you know, the Great Replacement Theory, for example. Um, but also one of the things they would often do is they would share things from, you know, far-right platforms like Breitbart um, and so on. But another thing that they would also do is they would share a lot of foreign news, which, which, um, or they used this newspaper, I think called the local, which is a kind of expat newspaper. And they would, they would present these links, but they would frame it in a really partial way. And some of the stuff they posted were out and out conspiracy sites. Um, and what was interesting about the conspiracy sites is that they, um, they had a very neutral, bland looking graphic design. So they looked like you know completely respectable news organizations or, or other types of organizations, but then if you actually did any homework on them, and this, I think the stuff was actually exposed by some investigative journalists, he found that they had connections to um, you know right wing organizations um, or far right organizations, in fact, um, or far right far right think tanks and that kind of thing. So so the um, 
So what was interesting is that the um, the anti-immigration pages, uh, pages on Facebook weren't used to actually organize action, but they were being used to spread hate and spread conspiracy theories and try to give credibility to conspiracy theories. Diana, you want to go in? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to, to talk about the... Um just the way that both the the solidarity groups and the mutual aid groups and the refugee self-organized WhatsApps combine um, really tactical, practical modes of sort of survival and organization with the dispute of the media narratives that those those things kind of come together in those in the social media spaces and in the WhatsApp groups. And I think there's something really interesting about that, about the kind of um, movement between um, and, and maybe something tells us something about the solution to the to the problem in some ways, which is to do with how do um, actions, you know, how do solidarity actions um, combine themselves with sort of as as sort of counter media spaces, you know, like in some ways, this is never going to resolve itself being played out in the media sphere when it's um, deeply disconnected from everyday practices. Um, and, and the less we are able to connect those discourses to everyday practices, the more we're going to experience what we're experiencing in this um, in this mediatic kind of sphere that has no relation actually to what's happening on the ground, like literally no relation. It's, it is a, a strictly ideological space that is there to convince, you know, on, on the trajectory from the far right. Um, ideas of the great replacement theory to the sort of liberal politicians that that those are very very disconnected from what communities are experiencing on the ground and and that in some ways some of the methodologies we were using um, around uh, speaking back through both producing contexts of relation you know actual relation and new discursive formations ways of um, reporting on those um, became really interesting and that raised a whole lot of questions actually for us because one of one of the things that came up um, in particular around these social media support groups and mutual aid groups was just technologies of care for example that refugee groups are using to support one another how sophisticated the technology survival and care are, how how difficult it is actually to find a language to report on that, because the mediatic language does not allow us a space to talk about, you know, um, migrant uh, communities who are using much more sophisticated and interesting technologies of care that, for example, in the pandemic, we're starting to see being, you know, utilized, but we're, we're not even part of the conversation. And and so, you know, how, how can we think about these sort of practices as being the basis for new ways of formulating discourse in the media? It was a conundrum we sort of ended on and didn't, didn't quite get to, to the next steps on that. And I think um, certainly, you know, we want to take the project forward and that's an area we want to really think about is how do you move, how do you kind of move from that scale of the grassroots organization into something that can be spoken about in a way that is meaningful, but also more nuanced? Well, indeed, many of the stories that you bring up in the book should inspire humility in any reader. But I think you do actually go quite quite a big step towards offering a set of solutions or at least a framework for thinking about solutions. And that's through your critical analysis and your introduction of this idea of migrantification, which I think would be very good to talk about now. So basically, if we go back to the cover of the book and we have the term, the words refugees and asylum seekers crossed out and you've got the term migrants. Where some of this is coming from is there's been a debate in news media um, within journalism about what's the appropriate terminology to use to refer to people on the move, because the term migrant has taken on such negative characteristics, because it's within that economy of like deserving versus undeserving. To be a migrant um, is to be fundamentally undeserving, 
but um, what we're really trying to say with this is that actually there's a kind of ugly truth, which is the kind of ugly truth of, of xenophobia, which actually seems kind of inescapable. And so we're using this term uh, migrantification. I, we're trying to draw attention to the ugliness of, of the term. And we're, we're kind of, um, you know, we're interested as, as um, I think, in drawing in, um, we're drawing on, um, I think, some similarly ugly terms, like sort of ugly portmanteaus that have been used elsewhere, like there's crimigration which uh, Dan- Janet Stumpf, I think, developed. Yeah, I was also going to say that Jacques Derrida also coined the term hospitality, which is a portmanteau between hostility and hospitality. So it's, it's, it's again, these, these terms are very ugly and awkward, and, and, but, but that sort of reveals, I think, the ugly um, reality of, of um, the experiences of, I think, a lot of the people that um, we interviewed. And, and we're also, as well, thinking about, um, um, you know, Nira Yuval Davis, work on everyday bordering um the idea that borders are now everywhere it's not just when you cross a border it's this idea of everyone um being outsourced um to carry out um, immigration control so so what we're interested in looking at is how um, people become constructed as migrants by members of society by the media and by the state you know what the way we, we try to explore this is when we did these interviews we tried to ask people i mean do you think you're a migrant and what are some situations in which you feel you've been treated as a migrant? And the kind of stories that, that we got is we, they, you know, some people talked about forms of, um, you know, classification and kinds of hierarchies. Per, one person, for example, said that um, first there's tourism, second there's dogs, third Polish people, fourth homeless people, and then here we come. Oof. So there's a kind of, um, there's a sense of knowing what your place is in, in a kind of um, hierarchy and knowing that you were about at the bottom. But they also talked as well when it comes to the state about the, the restrictions that many of them live under because, I mean, in the UK, they're not allowed to work. Um, they only live, I think at the time of writing, people are living on 37 pounds a week. Um, a lot of them are living in housing, which is managed by these companies like Serco and G4S. And from what we know now, and we've been hearing a lot of news stories now about um, um, what it's like to live in that kind of accommodation during the pandemic and how easy it is to catch COVID-19 in the, in the pandemic and the kind of disregard of the home office for for, for people there. But that's that's um, that's just something about what people are um, having to live with, but also as well, um, you know, people would have to sign in at this office, um, I think, on a regular basis. And I mean, it was well known that you could sign in one of these offices and you may never come out because you may deport it if they found out your papers weren't were ignored at that time. And also as well, um, people talked about um, uh, members of society. Um, um, they, they talked about um, telling people that they were asylum seekers and then... Um, you know, being fa- facing discrimination, but also as well because of the hostile environment and the outsourcing of immigration controls. People talked about going to the bank, being told they couldn't open a bank account, um, being told that their kids go to the kids couldn't go to the school, being told that they couldn't access the NHS and that sort of thing. So, so um, that that kind of bordering, the everyday bordering, and the outsourcing of immigration controls might became part of their, people's everyday experience. But I think as well, um, a couple of people we interviewed actually um, had stayed in the UK for a long time. It's since, I think, become British citizens. And they talked about things like one person mentioned having their rubbish bin, having um, said someone had written the word on their rubbish bin the day after Brexit, for example. Um, And another person said, I never felt 100% British because of the way people of my color have been represented in the media. And it's interesting here how I think migrantification crosses over with racialization. And so because this individual is black, they're therefore seen as, as the kind of internal, the, the eternal kind of foreigner on the doorstep. Yeah. And I think in terms of the media as well, I mean, they, they talked about, um, 
they would say things like, um, the way that I'm represented in the media makes me feel like a migrant and, and so on. So um, people really saw all those things as constructing them as, as migrants. And, and I think, again, in, in various places, it did crossover with racialization. And I think we wanted to, to work with this concept to, to look at how um, people are constructed as migrants, to look at, at the kind of um, the inescapable ugliness of it, but also to raise questions about whether this ever goes away, um, no matter how long you've actually lived in the country. And I think what, we saw, what we've seen with the Windrush scandal, I think um, even though the Windrush scandal happened after our book and our project, it, it kind of made a lot of that stuff quite evident, that you can even, in fact, be a British citizen and you're still, still you know, treated as deportable. Well, Kristen, thank you. That That's quite a depressing note on which to end the discussion of your fascinating account. But I know that the, all of you as researchers and writers are also engaged in quite a lot of activism. So I wonder if for the end, I could ask you to speak about some of the next steps and some of the ways you see this project evolving or continuing. Jana. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of next steps, I think, you know, we can all agree that um, certainly the issues we've outlined haven't gone away. So there's plenty of uh, more work to be done. And one of the um, the things that we're working on with uh, with one of the groups that we um, worked have continued to work on since, since the book was published and beyond um, is to think about this next step of, of on the one hand, um, how do we take the technologies of survival and care um, that are produced by groups of um, uh, who have been on the move, who are classified as refugees and asylum seekers, um, but also have been produced in relation with host communities? How do we start to narrate um, uh, and re-perform these kinds of ideas uh, in ways that are, as we were talking about before, that are a little bit more scalable? You know, how do we, um, A, do this at the level of, say, schools and, and um, you know, spaces of everyday life where people encounter each other? How do we do this in a, in a pedagogical way, I suppose? But also, how do we connect that work then to, um, you know, for example, schools of journalism? And that's been a, a real interest of ours and the next step is how do we um, intervene both at the level of, of the everyday um, spaces where people are encountering each other uh, and where certain myths and certain um, ideas that are spread in the right wing and liberal press are um, replicated and we, we do feel that schools are schools are a place that actually rely quite heavily on mediatic representations they often refer to the BBC in curriculum history curriculum and contemporary migration curriculum they'll make use of articles from the press. Um, so we're trying to think about those spaces as spaces of, of intervention. And at the same time, yeah, journalism, spaces where people learn to be journalists, basically. Um, and so that has a that's a really pedagogical kind of remit, I suppose, which which we're thinking about in terms of next steps, um, both in, on our side and also uh, with the, the groups that we're working with. I would say also, you know, with for a group like Global Sisters United, they're also very interested in um, the way that they uh, the methodologies that they use to articulate themselves. So there's also a side of this that has to do with, um, you know, how do we craft stories in a way that sort of challenge um, the request for the sad story? You know, how do, how do um, when those requests come, what kind of responses can be given to complicate and question um, the, the nature, the framing of the question itself, you know, which, is, which is often the issue. Well, thank you. Thank you to my guest, Gargibata Charaya. Thanks so much for having us. It's really great to um, have this conversation with you this afternoon. Thanks so much. Jana Graham. Thank you so much. And Kirsten Falkert. Yeah, th thanks again, Pierre. 
and thank you for listening. How Media and Conflicts Make Migrants by Kirsten Falkert, Federico Oliveri, Gaudi Bajtaraya, and Jana Graham is published by Manchester University Press. I'm Pierre Delancer. Join us next time.